Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Licton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Acer for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Um, delighted to be joined uh, by Andrew Hoover, who is the head of school at the American School International Chennai. I think of the American International School Chennai. Is it? It's written on LinkedIn as the American School International. <laughs> but uh, welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Well, well, let's start that Thanks again. For me. Completely. <laughs> Why? It's been a while. No, we'll just let's leave it running. I'll just get Jane to edit. It's fine. Okay. Is it the American International School? It is the American International School. My LinkedIn says American School yeah, International. Yeah, your LinkedIn says Head of School, American School International, just so you know. That makes no sense. Yeah. Give me one second, John. Sorry, just two seconds. No worries. Yeah, that's some kind of fake account, though. You know, I've got like this ghost LinkedIn account. Okay. I don't even, I can't even find it because I was just that's at not, mine. That's not your LinkedIn account then. It's not. But, uh, you know, LinkedIn's weird. It has, there, there's a ghost account for me out there. Wow. Mine is, uh, hold on a second. If I can, let me see. Yeah, I wanna, let's connect there, definitely. Andrew Hoover, I'm looking. Okay, there's two. One, one doesn't have a photo. One, the one that has a photo is correct. The American International School Chennai. Okay, cool. I just sent you a connection request, but there's another one as well. But John Mixon, you're connected to the other one. Like Chip Kimball, for example, you've got different people connected who I know are connected to different profiles. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that co profile came from. Yeah. Weird. You're going to get Jane to uh, edit this all out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not, not going <laughs> to John, do you, do you want, you want to kick it? John, you kick it off. I'm um, I'm fluffing my words today. I need to get my Okay, flow. okay. <laughs> Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. Really good to be back. And Dan, so nice to see you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, uh, John. Important to say you've actually had COVID very sadly, and you, you actually have COVID now, which so you're making a Herculean effort to record, but look like you're I'm feeling good. I'm actually fine. I'm much better, uh, you know, triple vaccinated, all those good things, and it's just, yeah. But uh, I wouldn't want to miss this for the world. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to the chat. Yeah. So we have our guest, Andrew Hoover, who's the head of school at the American International School of Chennai. I've had the privilege of knowing Andrew for quite a few years. We actually worked together at the American School in Japan. Uh, we were both in the middle school. I was the tech integrator and Andrew was a social studies teacher. So over the years, we've shared uh, a lot of stories and I've always been so impressed uh, with Andrew's leadership and his approach and disposition to leadership in schools. And he's finishing 11 years at the American International School of Chennai in India, which is in South uh, East India. And so we're really looking forward to talking about that. But I know Dan always does such a nice job of asking some travel questions and just, so over to you, Dan, more for the, uh, Kind of lifestyle questions that I think. Yeah, are so you know, I, I just enjoy living in different places. So I'm always, I, I, I've, I've never lived in India. You know, I've, I've been to India not for a while, and I'm very much looking forward to going back once quarantine's ended. But, but you were in in Mumbai and then Chennai, is that right, uh, Andrew? That's correct. And and how was it? So you've been there since 2005. Like, how, how was how was Mumbai? How was Chennai? Like, and 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 how, how much has it changed since you've been there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, before I, I talk about that, one of my favorite subjects, in fact, you know, if you've been someplace for 16, 17 years, it's, it better be one of your favorite subjects, right? But I want to yeah. uh, just extend my gratitude for the invitation to be here with both of you today. This is, uh, I'm a podcast uh, consumer, uh, like few others. I walk a lot and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Same I listen to yours. Yeah. I really appreciate everything you two bring uh, to the podcast universe and particularly to our areas of passion and professionalism. So I want to thank you both for that. And John, 
Um, special shout out to you for being here talking to me on a day that you have COVID. So uh, that's extraordinary. I'm really <laughs> dreading the. I'm dreading the variant that that you know will go into our computers and travel uh, travel that that way. That'll really uh, that'll I really think we're good. Um, yeah. So uh, Dan, great question. You know, uh, one. You know, I've been fortunate in being in India and rec- and being an administrator here and recruiting people for here because I am someone who, when I visited Bombay from Japan in uh, back in 2004, um, I w- fell in love with Bombay. And when I moved here, it took me three weeks to just feel completely at home. And John and I crossed paths in Japan. And I swear it took me three years to feel at home in Japan. So India is a place where I have this sort of uh, what do you call it? An innate affinity. And, you know, sometimes you have it and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Um, I won't fall into the trap that many people here try to get me to to do, which is, hey, Andrew, what what city do you like more, Bombay or Chennai? Um, they're contrasting places. And that's one of the things that's amazing about living in India is just what a, a region, which is, you know, the country is huge. It's a region of contrast. Um, and it's one of the things that I have found uh, particularly stimulating about it. And, um, and, it, and it's, it's one of the things I think that has kept me here because, you know, any place you're going to stay for a long time, uh, there's got to be some uh, fuel there to keep it new and to keep it interesting. And I just, I found this about Japan. I was in Japan for 11 years. Um, there was just always, it, it constantly surprised you. And this culture has got deep roots and it's yeah. also highly dynamic. I mean, John's visited India fairly recently. He's come here to the school. You know, Chennai, this city cooks, you know, it's up yeah. early and things are happening and things are changing. And you've got that just amazing modern contrast with this amazing historical culture um, that's got stories and traditions um, and connections. So, you know, it's been one of those places, obviously, you know, at, at the most interesting level, Bombay is a super city and a mega city. And we moved there from Tokyo, probably the world's largest, most organized city to Bombay, which is organized wouldn't be the adjective you use to describe it. Fascinating place, um, just big and really kind of constantly at you and intense. And Chennai is a large Indian city, 10, 12 million nestled along the coast of Southeast India. Uh, very s- suburban in its sprawl, uh, but very Indian culturally, Tamil. Uh, again, fascinating places. I have loved being here. It's interesting. I think India, like for someone coming from the West, it's quite polarizing, I think. when I, I, was, I went there, first of all, in 93. We're backpacking all around the world. And I spent like a month there. And it was four of us. And two of us were just like fell in love with it. And then two just couldn't get out quick enough. You know, they just, it wasn't for them. Yeah. I think yeah. you've got to either yeah. embrace the you know, the, how different it is or, or it just doesn't work for you, you know? That's well, you know, my, uh, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it contrasted distinctly with, with Japan, which I think is one of the reasons that I liked it. I mean, whenever you're going to leave someplace, you want to go someplace that's different. Yeah. Now, I, I don't get me wrong. I loved Japan and I still do. But, you know, when you're going somewhere <laughs> else, you want, to, you want someplace that's a little different. In India, culturally, this is a place that will hug you. You know, so if you're up for if you're up for the hug, it's going to hug you back and you you've got to it's very open because of its long history of incorporating cultures and incorporating people as they've come through this area. It's very much of a welcoming culture. It's a place traveling here, Dan, as you know, it's fantastic. Everywhere you go, you feel like you can get into it. Uh, yeah. and you don't feel the straight arm. Um, and so being here for this many years has meant that, you know, myself, our kids both, uh, we have two kids. They, they went to ASB in Bombay, and they've gone. They went here. Great travel experiences that they had um, sure. and wonderful cultural experiences. And, and obviously, in, in, in the time you've been there, I guess, 20 years or no, 15 years, I guess you've been in it. Like you've obviously yeah. seen a lot of educators and teachers come and go. Like, what I mean, what advice would you think? I mean, there's probably some people listening to this thinking about working in India. Like, I mean, how, how have you seen most people really like it? Or, or any advice you'd give? Like, any, any thoughts about people, you know, thinking of working in India as a, as a teacher? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the the one of the pieces that I so first of all, you know, when you recruit for here, you bump into, you know, the example, which is you gave some people have been here and they've, they love it and they know they want to come back. And it's like, you know, recruiting into that cohort of international uh, educators is, is glorious, right? Cause they've, they, they get it. They've caught the Indian bug and they want to be here. Uh, you know, for folks who may, may not have thought about it, I think one of the things that I lead with, which I think is actually kind of a helpful uh, filter, if you're thinking about going into international, which is that India is a place that is not place neutral. India is a place that is going to remind you that you are in India every single day. Yeah. And it, it, and when you internalize that just a little bit, you have to consider, you have to reflect on your own relationship to culture and to cultural experiences. I think that when I go a little further with that, what does it mean? It means that you, this is, this is going to, it's going to be, there are going to be times where it's really tiring. It's going to be times where, you know, you're going to have to become aware of your own cultural aspects of your own cultural kind of background and baggage and, and spend time thinking about those. When you're, when the place that you go to is culturally neutral or very similar to where you've been, you don't have to go into that space. And so, yeah. This space, you know, reflective spaces, if we learn nothing else from the pandemic, reflective spaces are tiring. And, you know, this place coming here, you're going to you're going to have to spend some time uh, being thinking about yourself as a cultural agent, because this place is going to remind you that, you know, culture is culture is here and it's going to sit on your lap if you, and you're going to have to manage it. That's fantastic. I think that's so important, uh, you know, even in the fact when you are recruiting, Andrew, I assume most heads, there are cultural nuances to any place you go. And I think even coming to Japan or when we lived in Tanzania, I know we had a lot of talks about what does it feel like coming to a country where often power and electricity are not available. There's the medical might not be to the standards that you expect. And, and I think right. it's so important that you internalize that as a yeah. candidate and understand what is your cultural compass and how might you deal with it. And if you've never done it, then you just need to be, I think, almost ready for some ups and downs and some of them quite challenging. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, at the end of the day, we're, you really have to, you're going to have to trade blinders. Because, you know, wherever you live, if you don't have blinders on, you're not going to you're not going to be happy day in and day out. No matter where, you know, now when I go back to the United States, you know, I got to put the media blinders or I'm going to get driven crazy on, you know. So, you, you, you know, you do have to have it. It's it is we're, we're talking about the same thing in a sense, like it's a level of self-awareness that, again, I, I love being international because I, I like the personal work that it inspires me to do, that it makes me do um it's and sometimes that can be really challenging but recognizing where you live so i i tell people openly if they ask that one of my issues here is is ground pollution and if i let it get to me if i spend a lot of time thinking about it and looking at it and talking about it all the time i would have been i would have left india uh 14 years ago and you have those you have those they're not I don't want to belittle these by saying they're pet peeves. They're they're truly they're they're issues that 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 become personal for us. And then how yeah. do you manage them? And learning how to do that really is one of the aspects of of uh, people who who have lived all over the world and who can talk about themselves. I think as being internationally minded and really understanding what that means at the at the level of you know my feet are on the ground and I've. Uh, I love being international. Definitely. And then, Andrew, my most important travel question as an Englishman is, have, have you learned to appreciate cricket yet? You know, um, <laughs> so first of all, I've, I've attended, I attended the India World Cup. The World Cup was yeah. here and, Fantastic. you know, my daughter and I went and uh, nuts. And I, and of course, when I went to see it live, I learned it, right? That's yeah. what, I didn't really understand uh, football, the, what the world calls football until I went to matches in Japan. And then I was oh. like, okay, I can appreciate <laughs> this. Cricket was the same way. So now when I, I can flip it on and watch like most 
sports, I don't have a great appreciation for them on television. So yeah. it's one of those things. But um, of course, I love reading about sports, and cricket's one of those sports that yeah, I yeah. Uh, now have. It's like religion in, in India, isn't it, basically? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Cool. No, I was saying it's like religion, completely off, off topic, but um, I read recently that the IPL, which is the Indian Premier League Cricket League, is the second highest paying sports league in the world out of any sport, any country. The NBA is number one and the IPL is number two. So it's, wow. it's big business. Even it's ahead more of, than it's ahead of Major League Baseball. It's ahead, of, it's ahead of a premiership in England. Wow. It's ahead of um, all the US sports, ahead of NFL. You know, it's, it's huge. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, John, back to you. We, we love our cricket here. Uh, and and it is you know as we're talking about transitions you know we lived in tanzania and china and japan our most difficult transition was moving to the czech republic coming back to europe after being away for 16 17 years which we did not anticipate we came in thinking oh it's europe i'm originally from switzerland had lived in europe educated in europe But it was interesting. So I think, as you said, Andrew, you can never really anticipate what might and what kind of blinders you have. So I I thought that is so important the way you both share that out. John, did you find that when you came back to Europe, it was a bit like you missed the sort of um, how eclectic and how interesting everything was? I know a lot of people move back to Europe from Asia and they really want to go straight back to Asia. It was so quiet. Yeah. You know, yeah. being in Tokyo and Beijing and in Dar es Salaam, even Dar es Salaam, that's not a cause. There's just, you know, activity, like Andrew says, once the morning starts. And actually in Tokyo, there is no morning or night. It's just constant. And Beijing is a bit like that. And Prague has its, you know, activities, but it just did not feel as vibrant initially because I was looking through a different lens. And it has a lot of vibrancy, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I think that that was uh, just a transition. That's Talking nice. about transitions, Andrew, you have you're at the kind of at the swan song. You're ending your tenure, eleven years at the school as head of school, and uh, I know you were also a middle school principal in Mumbai and have been very active in leadership in international schools, also with different organizations. And one of the things that you know I think is always interesting when we have guests that are finishing, not finishing, but transitioning to a new phase of their career, not retiring, but looking at new opportunities, kind of what are some of the things that you're walking away with today that maybe you weren't walking away when you first started? What are some of the things that you now have in your toolkit that maybe you see as opportunities to use in this new context that you're going to explore? Wow. There's a lot. There's a lot there in that question I could unpack, John. I, you know, <laughs> I know you quite well, Andrew. So we're happy to do a five-hour podcast. <laughs> John's good at his. John's good at his questions, which encompass a lot. I, I like them. You know, it gives a. Yeah. It gives you a lot of freedom yeah. to choose which part to ask as well. Though. Yeah, and especially at this time where you know we're coming through these. You know, we're now month twenty-three, uh, managing uh, ourselves um, and our schools. Uh, our peers, our colleagues through, uh, you know, these ex- the extraordinary uh, phases of the of the pandemic, which, you know, also have, you know, just opened up amazing avenues for uh, individual and community um, sort of uh, reflection and recognition and realization. Uh, aside, you know, uh, you know, John, I, I think I think one of the things I, I was, a, I was, I've been a teacher for about as long as I've been in a formal leadership role. So I, I'm a, I'm a little bit of an unusual head of school. Um, I turned 60 this year. Um, I taught for 16 years. I was, you know, full-time teacher. I didn't go, I, I didn't, in many respects, I, I sort of became an accidental, uh, accidentally fell into formal leadership roles, but not so accidentally too, because I think as a teacher, I was really drawn to uh, kind of uh, work that was beyond my specific domain, if you'll pardon that limited notion uh, of the classroom. So I got really interested in kind of broader school change and, and just interested in that work, in the work that I got to do with colleagues, you know, as a team member or team leader. And the change work that one does in a division and even at the school level. So I got, I got kind of drawn into that. I think 
I think one of the reasons I got drawn into that is because I have a streak that maybe many educators have, which is that streak of idealism, you know, that you're, you know, we're drawn to what we, we're drawn to this profession and to schools because um, the, the possibility of being a part of something that's going to make a difference for the future, that's going to be different tomorrow is so powerful, right? So I'm, a, I'm also, uh, so, so when I moved into formal leadership role, I think I brought that kind of idealism with me. So if, you know, to your question, without going into all the layers of it, I think, you know, I'm coming through 16 years in India and ASB and, and Bombay, really, um, really having recommitted and experienced in so many amazing ways what it means to be an, uh, um, an idealistic educator at, at a leadership level. And I think it, it has come through for me in the work that I've been able to do in these, these two mission, really mission-driven schools. And what does it mean? I take, I, uh, John, you know this, I take missions uh, really seriously, not, not seriously in, the, in a pedantic sense, but seriously in terms of like, you know, those, those, are, those should be our true north. And when they are, that's going to uh, open up lots of conversation, lots of constructive um, dialogue and some conflict. Um, and I find that space to be exactly where we want to be as schools. I am no less hopeful. I'm no less optimistic than I was, you know, when I was 26 and I took my first uh, teaching job. The, I, I, there, I've been accused of lacking patience sometimes. And I think some of my impatience is exactly the thing that somebody in my role needs. Um, and that, that said, I'm still, I'm still waiting out uh, the, the, the inevitable and gradual transformation of our, of our schools and the way that we think about how we prepare uh, kids for uh, strange and complicated and uncertain futures. And that's interesting. The idealism is, you know, I, that's something that I think a lot of great leaders really, that's compass that you refer to, that kind of north that you work with that really drives you day to day out. But the challenge very likely is when you are a school leader, you have maybe 100, 200, or even somebody like Dan that has an organization and has, they have their mission. How do you make sure everybody is as idealistic? Or maybe they don't need to be idealistic, but you need them to kind of buy into the thing. And, you know, I always, I have this wonderful relationship with a, a friend of mine who works at Apple. And every year when I go to Santa Cruz to visit my uh, wife's family, we have this lunch that we've had for years and I get to spend time at Apple. And the one thing that I always, when I walk out is like, everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, yeah. there is just this overt common belief in what they're doing. And it's not obnoxious or postered around the room, but when you interact with people, they're, they're all focused on the same thing. And I'm wondering as you as a leader, how have you kind of gotten your teams to believe in this idealism or maybe not believe in it, but coalesce around it so there is this a unified move? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, you know, starts with, starts with oneself, right? What is, you know, I have, what's my relationship uh, to those big ideas? You know, where am I? Uh, and then, you know, what am I going to do about it? Um, and, you know, look, you can have a, you know, the, the thing, mission statements need to be, need to, need to be um, frameworks for action, right? They should invite us to be doing things. Um, and I think leaders that don't do uh, into their mission, that don't act into their mission, you know, I'd love to have that conversation with leaders who don't think that that's a necessary thing about what we do. From my point of view, it's very necessary. So you're gonna you're gonna start with yourself. Um, the other thing is, you know, I, I do think our international schools. Some I, I think uh, it, the the missions have a certain resonance when you look across, particularly schools that are uh, I would say oriented in a progressive uh, way, uh, have progressive ideas and ideals and progressive values. There is a certain commonality to the things that we want to. 
um, the things that we want to do, uh, the things that we, th the way we think about school. But I honestly do think every mission is different. And I don't think they're all, uh, they're not all created equal. And I don't think they're all of equal uh, substance. And I think that, you know, the substance is in the invitation that missions give to community members to have constructive conversations. If you've got a mission statement that's so, and I don't have one off the top of my head, but that's so simple or so, so utterly clear that, uh, no one that, that there's nothing to really talk about or disagree about. I'm wondering, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> if you think about True North, True North is a large swath of territory. So when I think about my, our mission and you put it out there and say, that's our True North, well, there's a lot of room for everybody. And I think good missions uh, make people invite people in to conversations about fundamentally, what do they mean? What does this word mean? What does it look like when we do this? What's it going to feel like? What's my role in this? Uh, our missions all talk about students, but beh right behind that are the implications for the, for the adults and the community members as, um, as, as people who are going to, you know, the, the students are all, kids are always watching and they're always listening. And it's like, what relationship does, do these set of ideas have to me? So I think you know, great missions invite the conversation and they also invite conflict. Good core beliefs and core values should invite constructive conflict. And we should be able to have uh, discussions where we disagree about how to do things while we all recognize, all right, this is the direction that we're going. I think when you, when you like, it worries me a little bit when I get the sense that people buy into the mission too easily, like that, that as, as much as I'm, as much as I'm um, sort of not pleasantly uh, surprised by people who just who come here and, and don't want to have anything to do with the mission. It's like we wear it on our sleeves. Why, why wouldn't you want to at least participate in the figuring out of it? I'm interested. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I'm interested about like how, how does it work? Let's say, obviously, you know, you take over the role as a school director or principal or head, depending on, on the on the school. And obviously, typically, you're inheriting someone else's mission and someone else's mission statement. And do you think, I mean, do you think you generally want to change that and adapt it for you and, and put your stamp on it as, as a leader? Or would you only take a job at a school where you already agreed with the school's mission? Like, what's how does that work? If you put yourself in the shoes of someone becoming a, a leader, sure. like, what should they do? Less <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you, you know, if, if you've, it, it depends, I think it depends on sort of where, what a, what a school's or organization's relationship is with its mission, Dan, right? I mean, because that's going to tell you something about the culture of the school. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think going, going into a place with a mission, with a mission, if it doesn't resonate, somebody like me, who's idealistic, I'm not going to be drawn in, you know, yeah. unless unless the charge is, hey, Andrew, can you come in and flip this, turn this thing around? Um, and, and I didn't have that. I haven't had that experience where that was the sort of the, that was the, um, the, the, the course that we were taking. Um, but I think, you know, I'll, I'll refer, first of all, I'll, I'll revert back to what I was saying, Dan. I think, I think mi missions should not, should not be ex uh, an exclusive set of ideas. I think if it's too tight, if it's too, um, if it's uh, if it's too certain, um, if it's if it's too not Im not ambiguous enough, I think you're going to struggle to have people um, kind of get inside it and and be a participant. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know you know and and, all, and I also think you know you, we have to be careful about. Um, you know, here we've had this mission. I, I was, I was, we didn't have a mission and we didn't have a plan. So when I came here, it was what part of the work of the first two years. So I definitely got to live it. But, you know, I wrote the mission. Our community wrote the mission. There were 30 people in the room and all 30 people had to agree with it. And part of what you have to acknowledge about leadership is, um, I think healthy and good leadership is leadership is not about getting what you want. Um, and I wouldn't say that this is my mission. In fact, I, uh, you know, between the three of us, uh, that's my sense of humor. Um, I really wanted the notion of pursuit of happiness in our mission. And yeah. I kind of went out on a limb in those meetings where we were really hashing it out. And 
the, the community group just shot me down. And it's like, okay, I'm moving on. I never got since, since then, or probably even bef before that, you know, I've been a bit of a student of happiness. I think happiness is a really important topic for schools to be understanding and learning about what does it mean? Um, yeah. But nonetheless, you don't see it in our mission. And so from a leadership point of view, you know, one lesson that you, you learn early on in a formal role is it's not about you, actually in leadership, you're doing you're if you're not compromising, you're not, you're probably not leading well. Yeah. That's so interesting. This idea. Yeah. One other thing, Andrew, you mentioned earlier, which I find is really interesting is like, you know, that you should, you should question the mission. It shouldn't be something that you just have to accept. And honestly, I think a lot of schools get that wrong. I mean, I work with a lot of schools, like, for example, I work with some Christian schools and their mission is, you know, Christ follows this. And, you know, I'm a Christian. So for me, I, I, I you know, I agree with this mission, but does every child automatically always, you know, they, they, I don't think, I think the mission should be, you know, the children should be told, you know, this is something, you know, you, you've got to question this as well. Like I think you mentioned, it's not always just, you have to um, accept every aspect of this as, as the, as the truth laid down from above, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's in a sense, it, it is a, it is a promise. Um, and it's, it's, so it's not, if it's not a reality and if it's true North, it's, it's somewhat, it should be somewhat abstract. Yeah. Um, and so th there should be lots of room for really good uh, conversation. So, you know, to that, Dan, I often refer to our mission as the primary container for conflict, constructive conflict. Yeah. It's also uh, the primary container for alignment. It's yeah. also my, my, the first, the first document that I'm going to make sure that I've got in my head when I'm making a big decision. Sure. Um, it's, it's not a simplistic thing. And, yeah, and again, sure. I like the true North as a notion, as a conceptual notion for the, the mission, because that, that is a, that's a lot of geography, yeah. you know, in, yeah. a, in the notion of a true North, if I'm standing here in Southern India and I point myself true North, there's a lot of territory there for the community to, to engage with. And what's important that you keep bringing back, Andrew, is this idea of there needs to be uh, a, a good discourse and there needs to be conflict, but constructive conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that, especially in this day and age with polarization, and we don't even need to go down that road, we all see it on our feeds and whatever. But I'm wondering, as a school leader, that how do you grapple with this tension of wanting people to be engaged in some type of discourse, call sure. it a conflict discourse, but at the same time, make sure it's with empathy, there's some humility, and it's constructive. Because often in schools, you know, you have a, quite a wide spectrum of buy-ins and people get tired or they get cynical, et cetera, et cetera. How do you kind of, as a school leader, ensure there is kind of a bottom line that everybody plays by. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, that, that's, that's a, that's a great question, John. And, and, um, you know, I'm, I think that, um, the, the question itself is an important one to keep on the table, you know, how, let me frame it a different way. How do we, how do we talk together and how do we work together? And we know the quality of conversations and the ways that we have those conversations are going to be a direct reflection on the quality of work that gets done and the quality of the organization that we all, quality of the community. And when I say quality, again, I don't mean that, uh, I don't think quality is everyone, you know, sitting around in the circle singing the same song um, and doing everything the same way all the time. It's, but it, it is about fundamentally, let, let's go to some basics. Uh, you know, I think of, I'm, I'm a big Democrat with a small D. I believe in democratic processes. I believe in self-determination and equity. And so when you think of that and you apply it, and I think that fits with a progressive school model, what do we believe in? We believe in respecting each other. You know, we believe that um, we believe in each person's uh, value as a human being. We acknowledge that each one of us has to determine for ourselves the kind of, you know, life of integrity that we're going to lead. We, we see diversity and we embrace diversity because we know that diversity in all forms, including ways of seeing the world and ways of talking about or thinking about the mission is going to make us stronger. 
it doesn't mean that it's always it it doesn't always feel great necessarily in the now. Um, but I think uh, you know th- this is the way th- I think these this is the way that healthy families, healthy communities, healthy organizations function. Right, conflict is endemic to our work together, as is consensus, as is um, uh, appreciation and gratitude and love. Uh, so I think those things need to go together. Um, you know, when you have that, when you have the problem where you know the core the core values don't make sense to someone, I think, you know. That's where, you know, that's where you have to have hard conversations. And that's where, you know, leaders become, um, you know, really important to the community. Uh, and how do you handle that? Do you find in your tenure, you've had to always come back to those conversations because you have transitions. You have teachers that leave, new administrators come in. So there's kind of a, a turnstile. So is this, a, as a leader, would you say you never need to underestimate how many times you need to remind people of that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think even in, in highly stable organizations, um, you know, and we, we've, got, we've gotten a lot better at, at retaining uh, faculty, but, you know, we are, we're an international school, an international student body, international faculty, and you're absolutely right. There's a lot of, you know, what we think of as churn. And so, yes, how do you, uh, in a sense, reproduce the culture um, and do that um, and do that with energy and newness? And I think one, you know, the great thing about uh, communities that do shift and do uh, new people come in is they bring those perspectives. Um, I think, you know, you, you do, and you, you, um, you, you know, what I think of as, you know, even in um, organizations or in my family where I, I don't have a lot of turnover in my family, but the, you know, the echo is really important. You know, what, what are the things that kind of get echoed and they get echoed. Uh, so you hear them differently in time, but also they, reverberate through time into the future. And you've got to be, you've got to, you got to find space for those. So I'll, I'm going to give you an example that has, that has been really helpful to us. So a long ago, we became uh, an adaptive school school. So we, we brought in the adaptive schools collaboration model, and we are still just super committed to that. And that you know, so that's one of those professional kind of learning events that wasn't eventful. Instead, it has become part of the DNA of the school. And what that has empowered us to do is have, you know, have hard conversations. It's helped us understand how to be collaborators. And collaborators aren't necessarily agreeers. Collaborators are people who kind of go into teamwork situations and mix it up and really work through stuff to to do the best work that we can. Um, I think that's filtered down to kids as well. How do we work together? I mean, if you think about what democracies are, it's so central. So, you know, I actually, you know, take an example. I look at the adaptive schools work that we do and I link it directly to the mission, even though it's very much on the ground. And actually I link it to my broader passion for creating democratic institutions. Um, So, I, I think that that answers your question, but I think you're generally you've got to you've got to keep your eyes you got to keep your eyes on the ball, um, and I think you do have to look at every you know every time you change a group, every time you every time a new person comes in or person leaves, you've changed the group and you've changed the culture. So you you have to acknowledge that, and so you've got to become you've got to become a good storyteller, and you've got to become. Uh, really be clear about what our commitments are that are going to that we're going to get the most from as you know we continue on this you know journey toward what we would our mission some something up there that's true north and what's interesting as you describe that kind of reiteration that occurs and with people coming in and out and always making sure and you use the adaptive schools what i think so often and you alluded to this Kids listen and watch and see what's going in the school building much more than often we realize. And often staff will, you know, 
share something in the corridor or in an open coffee room and it trickles out. And I think we underestimate how quickly kids pick up on that and on the culture. And I think yeah. if they see that, that you're describing this reiteration, good conflict, collaboration doesn't mean we all agree, but we're coming to consensus. I think that has a huge impact on them as they, that echo chamber that you use so nicely is that, you know, what echo chambers are we creating when those kids are in the corridor and they start seeing us or hear about a meeting? And many of the kids, like our children, uh, you know, they sat at the table and they heard us talk about school and uh, hmm. neither of my kids are going into school. There you go. <laughs> you know, uh, so I think, you know, that's so important. Andrew, as I'm listening to you and the, your dedication and your passion, and I know the work that you've put in to the schools that you've worked in, of course, you're constantly being pulled at by a million different people. You have a board, you have your directors, you've got your teachers, you've got the parents, and you've got the cultural context, maybe the local officials or whatever. And, you know, we're all human. And what have you found in your 11 years is kind of just your well-being and just managing this Ooh. constant being on. And if you're passionate, you give everything. How do you recharge? What are some things maybe that you would want to share on reflection with other leaders or even teachers or people that are very busy? Kind of what, what have you learned in this journey? What is the story that might have changed with well-being? Well, you know, that's a great question. And I'm, you know, there are, there are a lot of, um, you know, a lot of my colleagues here at this school here now and who have been here who, uh, who, who would do a much better job of answering that question than I would. Um, you know, as, as, your, as your preamble to the question kind of indicates, um, you know, I think my challenge personally has been you know, really finding, finding balance with um, the time demands of the job and the time demands of being a parent and being a, you know, a spouse. Um, and then the time demands that you really do need to give to yourself, right? And I'd say, you know, generally my challenge has been, I, I, I haven't given, I haven't, I've struggled, I've been challenged to give to myself in the ways that I think really uh, we need to be, we, we need to be conveying. So as the, as the kids have listened and watched me, I'd say that's one area where I would have liked to have said to them, yet yeah, don't, uh, don't do this part, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, one of the most important conversations that we started having as part of our planning process that's linked to our mission has been about well-being. And that's, uh, that the, 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 those conversations were, became really important to us when the pandemic hit, like they were, they were really important to us before, but you know, one thing that the pandemic has uh, done in my view is it's, it's put us all uh, sort of in that vulnerable space that really kids are at all the time. You know, kids don't know the future. They're, they're still trying to, their brains are not hardwired to kind of, suss out certainty and pathways and that kind of thing. And we've been living that way. And we talk about these missions and all of a sudden this pandemic has put us all on the ledge, right? All of a sudden. It's um, so, you know, in any case, you know, we have, we have this well-being framework that's been incredibly helpful to us for, to have conversations and to get good work done. Um, and one pillar of it is self-awareness um, and, you know, and I, I, I think if I've learned anything over the last few years um, in the pandemic, it is that, you know, becoming much more self-aware to this, you know, the stories in my head about where we are, where we've been and where we're going. And then what, how does that relate to me? Um, so I think if I could answer the question, I'm, it's almost the answer. You really do have to think of yourself as a stakeholder. And that's been a challenge for me. And through the pandemic, I've actually learned how to think of myself that way and, and practice that more intentionally. But the notion 
that you are a stakeholder of your own life that, yeah, you have to judge. Yep. I'm accountable to lots of people. I'm also accountable to myself. Wow. You know, I mean, it's like, I wish that I had thought of that when I was 12, you know, um, it's yeah. not, it's, it, it, not a lot of wisdom there, but you know, it took a pandemic for me to really recognize, um, and to take that seriously. Yeah, I think all of us, I think for some reason, you know, well-being was, and we've had guests here talk about well-being. We've all understood it, but somehow the pandemic really brought it out. And I think, you know, for many leaders, and that's something that, you know, I'm curious to hear from you, Andrew, you know, for many school leaders around the world, it's gotten more and more complicated. You know, if you're a school leader, you're not just doing education, you're doing uh personality conflicts, you're doing political conflicts, you're doing environmental conflicts. There's so many things that come to your table. And very likely you can go and get a doctorate and a master's in that field. But the complexity, the nuances and the constant uncertainty and constant demands. What are you what would you say to aspiring leaders, you know, the people that are maybe starting to become an assistant principal and they want to, you know, become a school head? What are some cautions or what are some things that you think looking back, because it's really changed since when I think of my, in my own school, the headmaster, headmistress had a very parochial kind of limited role and there wasn't much on the table. I'm not undermining or dis saying that their job wasn't important, but I think the world has become so much more polarized. There's so many more complexities. Uh, what do you think are some guideposts that you would say, okay, you're interested in going into leadership. Let me warn you, or let me make sure you understand this. Just. John, I just, you're, you, you, you lob these onions at me. Um, I just want to grab them and peel them back. Um, you know, I, I think, so, you know, a couple things first, you know, with leadership, you know, I've alluded to this. I think, you know, when you're a leader, I think you've got to become a student of yourself and of leadership. Don't underestimate when you, you know, sometimes as educators, we think, oh, well, I'm really good at curriculum instruction, or I really, I, you know, I like being with adults. Yeah. And you're going to, there's, there's an entire field of literature and thinking and processing out there called, and it's about leadership. It's complicated. And so you, you gotta, so my, a piece of advice there would be, you know, get serious about being a student of yourself and about the area of leadership. But, you know, someone aspiring to do that, I think, um, you know, I've got a 25 year old, John, like you, our kids are very similar in age and a 20, 23 year old, you know, my conversation, what do you, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? And so, you know, in education, if, if you're, if you want to go into leadership, it, it better be something that you care about there needs to be something there that you care about and that you're passionate about. And, and if you are, if you've got those, if those fires are burning, then go and just, um, you know, remember to, you're going to have to know yourself differently than you probably have in the past. And there is, there is this complexity of roles that you know, leadership fundamentally is a small L process. Um, you know, you, you certainly in flat organizations like schools, you don't lead with the title. You know, you've got you you got a lot. There's a lot to do. Um, you know, so I, I I think I'd be there. Um, you know, John, you know that you know I I talk to I think middle level leadership in schools like team leadership, some of the hardest leadership work there is in the world. You know, it's not necessarily the most risky, but team leader roles in schools are really, really hard. You know, there's you got to have clarity of vision. You got to build consensus. Um, sometimes, the, the you know, we, we, we have these things in schools called teams. Right. Well, like, have we does every team in a school have a purpose? Because if you don't have a purpose, you're really not a team. So you're oh, I'm, a, I'm on a team, but we don't have a purpose. What's our purpose? Well, to meet every week. Well, that's no purpose. Right. So sometimes, you know, there's a there's a lot of back work that has to get done there. And and when you're a teacher and you're a teacher leader, 
um, we we know how much energy you know the the giving to students and how much attention you are how many decisions you are making on a daily basis it's exhausting there's a lot of energy out so you know if if whatever you're if whatever you're doing in a leadership role is not bringing energy back in and that's why i think if you're passionate about it and you believe it you gravitate to that follow the energy uh, if we've learned another thing in the pandemic it's follow the energy and and go ahead and do it um and that's then so you know that's there's so, so much to learn yeah and you're so right about the energy because i think often where people feel depleted because of just the situation is where can you get that energy who are the people that would kind of reinvigorate you and really want you to get going you know there, there's i've heard the quote that a leader is somebody that jumps and takes the grenade. <laughs> and I'm wondering what you say to that. Yeah, that's interesting. The leader's the one that, well, I'd say that, um, you know, somebody that jumps on a grenade for the group, um, that's uh, uh, an incredibly courageous thing to do. And I would have to say, depending upon the circumstances, that would be an act of leadership. Um, I think, um, you know, so sometimes if I'm, if I can extend the metaphor, I think sometimes as leaders, we are the only ones to do something. There might be nobody else to do something that is utterly essential. And we are part of our role. We are protectors. You know, we're protectors of the, the people who are here now. And we're also the protectors of our future community. You know, we, we like our boards of directors who are very much or great boards think of themselves as the boards for the future. We want to be here tomorrow for those kids that we don't even know yet. And I think heads also have to be in that space. So, you know, when, if the, if the grenade is there and, and that's what you have to do to, to protect uh, the here and now and the future, then that's what you do. Uh, and that's a courageous act of leadership. Um, Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. Question, John. You, a question. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> you often, you know, you often hear that. And, and more in the context, if you look at some of the pundits, like the Simon Senecs and old Drew Dudleys, they, you know, they talk about the Marines that, you know, that kind of where I, I will do anything to save my platoon. And there's a watered down version with leaders that you see some leaders that, you know, I remember having a leader every morning, they were at school at six o'clock and they were the last one to leave. He was actually a leader with you and me. And during the day, he was with kids. But in the morning, he came early and he stayed late because he knew that kind of work could not go during the day because the day was focused on the teachers and the students. And that has never, never gotten out of my head. I, was, I am to this day uh, so grateful to have witnessed that. And I think you have too. We both had the uh, privilege of being with that leader. But I'm just, you know, so it's often interesting. Another thing, and we have a guest, Dr. Helen Kelly, who's coming back. Uh, where Dan and I had the pleasure of uh, talking to her. She's done a lot of research about wellness and leaders and teachers. And she's about to write a book about well-being amongst uh, school leaders. And we're going to have her back at the end of the next month. Are you, from your cohort, as you talk to other leaders in your region and you're interacting with different organizations, and I know there's a headnet uh, email group, are school leaders getting tired? Is this last three years really taken into toll? And are you seeing leaders saying, you know what, I'm done? Um, yes. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I don't see how anyone's kind of coming through this and not, you know, not feeling, um, you know, not, not feeling the, the, um, the fatigue, um, the cumulative um, stress, the uncertainty, um, the waves of it, um, you know, the burdens uh, that that brings along with it. I, um, you know, so whether you're a school leader or 
you know, others, I, I'm, I think, I think we've all, we're all going through this and this is part of, you know, the great reassessment um, that, that I think has been going on across many, many fields. Um, leadership, you know, schools, you know, we're community organizations and these have been, communities have been really hard hit by this. So it's changed the job, made it very hard, made it, there's, a, there's been a lot of stress um, so I think there is a, there's, there's a lot of uh, tension in, our, in the system. Um, you know, and that said, it's also, you know, I'm going to look back on this and say, um, you know, what a, it was an amazing, it's been an amazing experience. And I'm not talking about it in the past tense. It's not going away. Um, but certainly, you know, I feel like it has, for me, it has re- you know, and I'm basically an optimistic person. I, I, I thrive on taking a lot of responsibility and trying to be, do my job well, but this is, this experience has, has really forced in me to do different, a, a much different kind of um, personal work on a continuous basis and how I've had to rethink in our, or, you know, what does it mean, you know, for us to take the responsibility and what is, optimism mean you know there have been times where i've just felt like uh you know like am i i'm trying to be optimistic am i being real and genuine and how what does it mean for me to be the optimistic person that i am in this context when i don't i don't have any clear view on the crystal ball than anyone else um you know and then where in a time that requires strength what is what does the new humility look like um, so, you know, again, it's, uh, the situation has, it, it's exhausting because it's, it's put, it's made our missions and what we do very, very real. There is no, this is not a simulation. <laughs> and when you have that experience, you know, I can jump on a grenade in my computer game, or I can jump on a grenade. And when you have the experience in reality, um, and you allow yourself that there's just going to be a tremendous amount of growth. Um, and so I think that's what I think, I hope that's what's happening for, for lots of us. Uh, that, that, that it carries, there's a tremendous amount of risk and vulnerability there. I don't mean to downplay that. Uh, I, I, I know that from experience. I, I'm living uh, with a lot of risk and vulnerability in my role and in the work that I'm doing. Um, and you know, okay, that, that is what it is, but the learning that, that this has given to us is truly, it's, I think at some point we'll, we'll, we'll have enough distance and look back on it and say, what an amazing gift of experience this has been. And I love that, uh, the idea of looking back later and realizing what a gift it is, because sometimes now it doesn't feel like a gift. But I really like the way you're making us remind ourselves that usually in hindsight, then those positives really stick out and the learnings that we've engaged with. And this vulnerability, I think, is so important. You know, you, and I'm sure, you know, Dan can talk to this too. You hear about the great <clears throat> resignation, you know, people basically yeah. saying, I'm done. And I think very likely collectively, we've never had to really self-reflect and think of ourselves, as you say so nicely, Andrew, being a stakeholder of ourselves. And maybe the one silver lining of COVID is finally we've really been able to dig deep and really reflect on what are we doing? Does this really matter? Do I really want to be doing this? Uh, and, and you know, those vulnerabilities maybe provide us with a better framework to move forward. So Definitely. absolutely. I don't know, Dan, any yeah. thoughts or regarding? No, I, I completely agree with everything you said. I mean, it's, it's just been, um, yeah, like you say, I mean, I think we're going to look back on this and say there's been some really useful things, how we, we have grown in some ways. It doesn't always seem like that. Um, I think on a, on a concrete level, I mean, the COVID for me, it's, it's been a few things like that have really come positive. Like, for example, now, I've completely given up watching the news. Like I realized that it was absolutely destroying my mental health. Just 
and and my life could go on as normal. I don't need to know the COVID statistics. It doesn't it doesn't affect me directly. And 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 it lives a die of fear. So there's a few things like I think concrete things, you know, in terms of what you can grow from this. Like I don't watch the news anymore at all. You know, I don't even check the BBC website. I, I get it from different sources, and and my life is absolutely better for it. You know, it's interesting. And I yeah, think, you yeah. know, if you just look at uh, Facebook in the stock market, you know, more and more people are saying goodbye to social media because... Yeah, I'm, off, you know, Facebook. I'm off Facebook as well. I'm not even on Facebook yeah. anymore. Adam Grant, the podcaster, has a great thing. And he says, you know, once you're on Instagram or any of these social foods, you suddenly realize what's the point? What, what, yeah. what is the value added? What have I gotten out of this? Absolutely yeah. nothing. I'm actually more miserable. That's exactly Andrew, right. I was actually feeling more miserable on Facebook by the time I left. So like, what, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. So, so you if know, you're holding stock in those things, go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think I'm, I'm struck by, I think the, the pandemic has, has really shown, uh, you know, spotlighted what I think of, you know, there, before this virus got a hold of the world, you know, I think there were, um, debilitating behavioral viruses out there, you know, self-pity, nostalgia, certainty. And this, pen, this virus has really forced us to react into those behavioral viruses. Like, boy, you're, if you're someone to, pr if you're prone to self-pity through this, it is going to be a grim, it's been a grim time. And the, and the thing to the, how do you deal with that? You own it. What, what's in my control, start to own the things in your universe and, and take responsibility. It's been such a great reminder. And that's where, you know, Oh, we're, we spend so much time looking forward to getting back our old lives. Well, not going to happen. We're never going to go back. And so that's the source of optimism that we need to embrace. Optimism is not just pie in the skyism. It's, it's, it's a notion that we can look ahead and start to see new forms, right? Mm -hmm. And certainty is such a menace. You know, um, John, you remember, uh, you know, I kept a sign in my classroom for years, which is certainty is the enemy of learning. And kids love that, right? It's like, aren't we supposed to become sure about stuff? And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, actually scientists are never sure. And it's like, <clears throat> this is such a reminder to like, get, get humble, right? Yeah. We don't know a lot and it's okay. Um, and so, yeah, and turning off, turning off the, the noise that's out there that's just um, basically uh, sort of, you know, scratching at all these behavioral impulses that we have is, I think it's been, a, it's been, a, it's been crucial for a lot of people. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, it, it, I think it was in The Economist, they say, welcome to predictable unpredictability. And yeah. I think, you know, I, that really stays there. Andrew, thank you. And I know you are closing a chapter and opening a new chapter. And uh, I assume that uh, you're looking forward to something different. Is, is, this, is this something that you feel that going into a different... Uh, road is where you were at at the end of your tenure here yeah i mean you know the um look this is uh the first of all i'm i am optimistic about uh you know the next generation of leaders that are coming up in international schools i'm seeing so much uh so much promise and energy um and that thrills me um you know i think yeah, the intensity for me, just wanting to be like, you know, I, I need to try something different. You know, it's like if 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 I don't, I'm not going to actually I I couldn't do uh, another head of school job right now because I don't have enough perspective on what has happened to me. Like I, I actually, I know that if I were going to do a head of school job again, which I could do, I may do, um, I am going to need more perspective. And so I've got to find a way to take that perspective. So I am going to change gears. I'm going to go back to the States. John, 
you know, it's like I know the biggest cultural shocks of my life are in my next year of going from where I've been. I mean, every place is boring when you've lived in India for as long as I have. And I'm going to have to wrestle with that. I've been in the States enough to know that, okay, I'm going to have to go back, be a cultural agent again. Um, I'm going to have more internal work to do. Um, But in any case, I know that I need perspective. So if I were going to do this job again, and I haven't ruled it out, I've, I love the job. I've loved it. I've loved the uh, experience that I've had at this school and in Bombay. Um, uh, I know that if I, I gotta, I gotta get, I gotta take myself to the other side and learn and think about things a little bit more. Thank you, Andrew. And, uh, what, what a wonderful way to, uh, leave and also maybe remind everybody we all need to take perspective and sometimes respite or doing something completely different is a good way to look back more than keep going or as you said not taking another head of school position right now but doing something completely different andrew thank you so much for your wisdom and your reflections in this podcast and uh, we wish you all the best Kay, your wife Two, as you uh, transition back to the United States, how long has it been since you guys lived there? I'm thinking this when we were in Japan, we left. 94. Wow. Well, that's, that's a long well. time. It's a different place. <laughs> it's going to be, I'm going to be uncomfortable next year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dan, hey, any other further? It's been such a pleasure uh, and an honor to uh, engage in uh, conversation with the two of you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Dan, any f- closing thoughts or anything? No, nothing. I think Andrew finished it really well. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk, Andrew, and I uh, hope to talk again.